Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Following the 2016 elections, there are many unanswered questions about what issues will dominate the agenda for our new president and Congress. In an eight part series, Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek's Washington, D.C. policy professionals and attorneys discuss their perspectives on the biggest issues facing the next administration. Brownstein's strategic advisors Barry Jackson and former Senator Mark Begich moderate bipartisan discussions on the first 100 days of Trump's presidency, as well as pressing issues like immigration, health care, financial services, tax and trade, education, infrastructure, and marijuana policy. In this episode, shareholders Mark Lampkin and Al Motter discuss what the first 100 days of Trump's presidency could look like and what the outlook for Democrats is in the House and Senate. This is Mark Begich. Uh, I've served in the U.S. Senate from Alaska for six years, been a mayor of uh, Anchorage, Alaska, been on the local city council and also in the business world for many years. So I joined the Brownstein firm almost two years ago, and it's been a pleasure. And uh, the topics that we cover are enormous. So I'm just glad to be here to be able to have a conversation with so many talented folks. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm Barry Jackson, and along with Mark, I serve as co-chair of the strategic practice here at Brownstein. I'm one of only two people that have served as chief of staff to the Speaker of the House and senior staff to the President of the United States. And along with my colleague here, Mark, I think we can provide you a pretty interesting back and forth about the role of the Congress and the role of the White House as a new administration and a new Congress takes place. Barry, uh, being part of the strategic team, we get an opportunity to see a lot of things from a broad perspective and no question with the new Congress, a closer Senate than ever before, and a new administration that I would say most pundits, most media, most everybody didn't think was going to happen. Here it is. A lot of change and a lot of new discussion around how government will work and how things are going to change with regards to regulation or many of these bigger issues that uh, the Trump administration talked about in the campaign. Yeah, and I think one of the things that the Brownstein-Hyatt firm brings to our clients is, um, as you said, that top-line view is we're well known for being able to look around corners, anticipate challenges before they get there, and be able to provide that service to clients as they work on behalf of their members, their shareholders, or whatever their interests lie. And one of the things you'll find, both of us know this from our experience, is that Washington sometimes is the last place to know what's going on. And one of the benefits of the Brownstein firm is that we've got offices in several states, and that's generally where things start to bubble up from. And that gives us our special insight. So let's dive in. Today we're joined with Mark Lampkin and Al Motter join us to talk about the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Thank you both for joining us today. Mark is managing partner of Brownstein's Washington, D.C. office and co-chair of the firm's government relations department. You bring years of political, legislative, and campaign experience to the firm. And Al Motter served as senior communication counsel for the U.S. Senate Commerce, Science, Transportation Committee and the leading Democrat fundraiser, most recently serving as a member of the Hillary Clinton National Finance Leadership Team. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Uh, This is a new day, uh, first 100 days of the Trump administration. What is it going to be like? What should we expect? And what should our clients expect? I think there's going to be fast action to uh, undo a lot of the bad things that were done in the previous eight years. Uh, The overextension of executive authority, 
uh, the disastrous Obamacare, the, the, America, the Affordable Care Act. I think you know, it's been clearly, plainly stated that the first thing that the Congress and the new president are going to do is they're going to you know, repeal and, you know, and then ultimately replace Obamacare. I think you're going to see this move to do something on infrastructure spending. That's going to be kind of a robust debate because some people just want to spend, some people want to do tax credits, but I think there's a consensus around we need to focus on bridges, roads, infrastructure spending across the country. Um, I think you're going to look at some, you know, as you already have seen with this, the, the renegotiation of the carrier pullout in Indiana, you're going to see some focus on looking at U.S. trade agreements. You know, and I think there's going to be more of an, a focus on opening up agreements, also looking at things in a, more in a bilateral fashion as opposed to uh, these big, broad, multilateral uh, trade agreements so that ultimately U.S. workers get greater protection in terms of keeping jobs here and not creating a fast-track provision or allowance that allows jobs to go offshore. Al, what do you see the first hundred? And, and one other aspect, just if I can add, that part of that 100 days is Congress, Senate, will have the job of proving these nominees, or at least <clears throat> conferring. Yeah, well, thanks for having us, uh, Senator. I think, you know, in addition to what Mark mentioned, I would add tax reform, at least in terms of getting the broad constructs uh, laid out by the Trump administration um, and Chairman Hatch and, and Brady. I believe that one of the key questions from the perspective of the business community is even though uh, you just heard from the right the notion that some of these things are awful, overzealous, overregulatory, I do think there are sweet spots in all these issue areas um, in which there could be consensus. So whether it's uh, health care, infrastructure reform, tax reform, there are Democrats and Republicans who believe that we need to do better. And particularly in the Senate, you mentioned the Senate where you've got 25 or so Democrats up for reelection, a lot of them in states that Trump carried by double digits. It's likely that there will be efforts by some at least to compromise. And I think that's the key question at first. You asked about the confirmations, which will be a indicia of how much compromise there's going to be, right? And how do they impact this agenda that's being laid out that Mark kind of went through there? So I, I think two ways. One, you're going to have uh, folks like Warren Sanders, the loyal opposition, who are going to try to use the confirmation process to drive their ideological political goals. You're going to have others, red state Dems, McCaskill, Tester, Heidkamp, assuming she's not in the administration. Maybe she's going to be it. Uh, I have a confirmation <laughs> here. Who are going to be, um, I think, more reasoned. And so I don't view any of the appointees to date that actually require confirmation. There's some that he's appointed that don't, that would occasion a lot of controversy, um, as being likely to be that difficult or contentious. Both of you guys have served in leadership roles in the Congress. And we're, we're getting into what think people assume is that an administration that is going to be pushing power out to the agencies, and that the Congress probably has a little bit more say than what you normally find in a White House-Congress relationship. So based on what you did, Mark, I know you were, were there when Republicans took over the House in 1994, and Al, all of your work with Senator Hollings. Tell me what our clients should be expecting going on on the Hill as they try to develop relations with the White House. You know, I, I, I think you're right. Um, I think the, the Congress is going to have a lot more to say on the particulars of certain things that they're going to write it. They're going to the sausage making here. I think at least in the beginning 
is going to be a lot more focused on the Congress because, A, you have an, an executive branch where the top of it is not experienced in Washington. They understand big, and they didn't have a substantial, well-articulated, defined uh, policy uh, platform in the campaign. So it means that they, you know, Obamacare, they want to get rid of it. But I think, you know, the, the House Republicans, a better way agenda actually fills in below it in terms of how you replace it. No, the White House and the agencies, the cabinet secretaries, in particular in places like HHS, where you've got a former uh, member of Congress, former committee chairman who's got some strong views. But ultimately, I think there's going to be a lot of deference to the sausage making process on the cap on in the Congress. So that's what we've said to, to clients is don't over lurch. To worrying about you know the bodies in the executive agencies. First of all, it's going to take time. You're going to have your cabinet level uh, uh, officials, your, your your cabinet secretaries, but the under card takes a while to come into place. So you're going to have some big things going on where not all of the key confirmed players will be in their roles. So that means I think it's going to be more likely that the Congress is going to be very intimately involved in the back and forth. And I think, you know, I think President-elect Trump has also proven himself that he's a table setter, not a guy who gets down into... You know, the, you know, the hands getting the dirty, bolts, the nuts right, and bolts, right. that he wants to set out broad themes, lay out where we want to go, and then allow the people that have expertise in the agencies and ultimately the Congress to decide, OK, what's it look like in the end product, so long as it's consistent with his personal goals. Which pushes your point that the client shouldn't get overworked up yet because he has a lot more people to appoint that help that infrastructure to implement his broad goals. Yes. Is that a fair? Yes. Al, your, your thoughts on And let me add, if I can add one caveat to that, and that is the House went through their leadership elections, and they not much changed. How does that also impact what was just described? Is that, I mean, are the Democrats on the House side at least kind of playing the same cards, hoping for a different result, or do you think there's enough changes that they're going to start having this action that's going to work with this new administration? I mean, as Keith Ellison said recently, if you're in the House of the Minority, all you have to do is show up and vote no. So I'm not sure how much it matters, the recent elections. There's a lot of hemming and hawing in the Democratic circles. People are disappointed. They ought to be. 18 years winning twice, that's not good enough record. Having said that, Leader Pelosi's raised a lot of money. She's a very successful spokesperson. There's a lot of things she does that are good. Ultimately, it's the choice of the caucus, and they voted for her. So... Do I think it's going to be that different? No. But I will say this, that Leader Pelosi and her continued leadership in the House is, reinforces you know, the, the bi-coastal you know, limitations of the Democrat Party. I agree with She that. comes from the heart, you know, if not the epicenter, of the liberal, salon, you know, elite world, San Francisco. And I think this election has said to us, and I think even, you know, yeah. Senator, as you firsthand witnessed, the previous election uh, said to us that there's a different, all that red matters. Right. And that we need, that, that Washington needs to learn from and understand all that red, because if they're on both sides. Right. If they're dominated by the, the coast and the spots of blue, I think what you could have is, and I think this is what the Steve Bannons of the world contemplate, is a, a realignment of the electoral map so that it becomes, you know, this, the blue wall becomes a purple-red wall because you're having your Republicans, conservatives, talk to people in a language that they understand on issues that they care about in a way that actually uh, lines up with their values, unlike the 
the, the bi-coastal elite. So let, let me jump in on one thing here, and Al, um, and I'm going to pose this to, to Senator Begich also. So this this notion of how the guys and gals up on the, on the Senate side are going to view this bicoastal, the red in the middle. Al, you've been on a lead Senate guy forever in the firm. There's this handful of senators that, that view themselves as moderate. They're more interested in getting things done. How are they going to navigate between a Trump administration where a typical Democrat base is outraged and their own interest at home? They need to listen to their constituents who voted for him. I mean... You know, I worked for a red state senator for who got elected seven times in South Carolina. And and I was also in the Senate when George Bush became president. And I was senior counsel on the committee. And we confirmed the transportation, commerce, FTC and FTC chairs, FCC and FTC chairs, all very in a very friendly way after arguably the most contentious election in our history. So the notion that, you know, we're just going to criticize and, and, and make our points and that's going to win us electoral or ideological or fundraising or political success is, is false in the Senate. It's not false in Chuck Schumer's New York City or Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco. There it fires people up. But these senators who are up for election, all of whom face a very challenging map, in my opinion, need to be working with the Trump administration. And not fighting. And, and stop. Democrats need to, I would also say, stop being surprised by his success. He wiped the floor with 16 Republican candidates. He beat arguably the most qualified Democratic candidate in our history. And then people focus on these, these missteps as they see them, some comments he makes or an assertion or a boast or a lie and ignore what's actually going on. What wasn't important about the rally in Ohio was that he said it was really fun fighting Hillary and the crowd chanted lock her up. What was important is that he was going to Ohio where Sherrod Brown has to run for election, rallying his base for an agenda he's trying to aggressively push. And that's what Brown's looking at. He's not looking at lock her up. He's looking at what's going to happen to my reelection and what are these people who come pack an arena in Cincinnati thinking. Yeah, and I, I, and I think, just to add to it, this, uh, I think the bicoastal is, is a problem for the Democrats long term. And this group of independent, moderate senators from red or purple states, depending on how you look at it, um, have to look at their agenda. And the Trump agenda, interesting on the items he's talked about, when you think of infrastructure, tax reform, regulation, are things that I believe they can easily embrace they don't have to necessarily agree with every single thing of Trump, but they can embrace these issues because this is the issues they've been talking about. And oddly enough, it is their struggle they've had within their own caucus to push these issues out. So in an unusual circumstances, the Trump administration may open a door that has not existed fully for them in the past. And if you look at most of those folks in the independent or the moderate Democrats, independent Democrats in the caucus, most of them have been executives, governors, AG. They're, they're in a different mindset of let's just get stuff done kind of attitude. So that that is actually a potentially positive. Uh, I think the caucus will struggle with that. But I think at the end of the day, the in the Senate, again, just speaking on the Senate, that these players become the pivot especially on votes that take 60 votes, that they're going to be thinking about their own interests of their states. And I agree with Al that you have to be looking at 
what happened in these elections. And what you saw, you had same people in some of these states who voted for Obama eight years ago and four years ago. These are what I call change voters. They're not Obama voters. They're not Trump voters. They're just, give me something different because Washington is dysfunctional. And if these folks who, if you talk to them individually, these kind of moderate senators in the Democratic caucus, they'll tell you they're they're as frustrated, I think, at times as the voter is how dysfunctional it is. So they're trying to figure out, now they need to just say it. So let, 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 me, let me play off that, Mark, and, and I want to ask Al and, and Mark this, because you two were both very involved in the Trump campaigns and the Clinton campaigns. We're obviously going to be in a two-year period of high political tensions. I think when people think about advocacy, it's normally the work that goes on, talking to the administration, talking to members. But what we see, Al, you make this point about this was a different type of campaign. As you guys, Mark, you running the firm, Al, you having ran the firm, what is changing in what Brownstein is going to be doing in this new world where members are going to be very sensitive to what's going on in their home states and their districts? How do we have to change what we do? Or are we doing it already? And what do we need to add to no, it? No, I think it's, it, it, first of all, it's just not us. It's working with our clients. And you got to convince your clients that, you know, and I say this all the time, silver bullet lobbying doesn't work. Like, I've got a silver bullet that's going to solve the problem. Go talk to one person, and whew, it's all taken care of. When I worked at the White House, generally when somebody said, can we get a call to the White House? And my response was, if the answer to your question is the White House, you're probably way too late. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't do silver bullets. You also just, you can't be uh, a static, meaning you just can't go up to one member, one committee, do the shoe leather thing. So I think one thing that Trump proved, if you if you go back 20 years, or nearly over 20 years, in 1999-2000, the advent, you know, the use of social media was just nascent. Very little people did things. It was emails. If you got email list, you were good. You know, you, you fast forward to Barack Obama. Barack Obama took social media to another level. You did a lot of engagement and talked to people in terms of uh, messaging directly, raising money. Donald Trump did, took it to a new level because I think Barack Obama talked to both the social, use social media and traditional mainstream media channels. I think Barack, uh, Donald Trump spoke over them and really set the table in a way that no one else had before. That he was setting the news cycle by uh, at the, the crazy three a.m. tweets, and that in, by the time the morning news reporters woke up, they were reacting not to the New York Times, the Washington Post, but they were reacting to Donald Trump. And I think we've got to take a less of that. That means you've got to kind of get the members where they live, on social media, with their constituents, with their ideological groups, with the talk radio hosts, with what the president's going to do. You know, both Democrats and Republicans are going to respond to what Trump's doing because down ticket, they've got people that voted for him. And so they're going to want to be in concert in connection with those people. And so we've got to go there. And so meet your voter as a constituent where he or she may lie, because that's how you're going to get the secret formula to influence a member of Congress in a more dynamic way than we've ever had before. You know, just adding two things. First, I, I agree. Um, so I guess it makes three things. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's no substitute for hard work. And this administration, I believe, will be more deferential in a hands-off way, oddly enough, to Congress and the executive branch agencies than the Obama administration ever was or would be or a Hillary administration would have been. And that presents an opportunity 
for the clients that wish to engage fully aggressively in the manner that Mark was describing to be more successful. Because there's going to be a lot of activity over the next six to nine months, and it's going to be across the board. And the leaders in both the House and the Senate are very excited about pushing um, on a whole host of issues. And the folks who, who engage aggressively will be successful. The second point I want to make is, and I say this with irony but and bemusement, but happiness, I think in many ways our firm is incredibly well off notwithstanding how much work I did to help Hillary get elected and all the money I raised and all the years I've known the Clintons in the Trump world, because there aren't that many people who doubled down and said, I'm for Trump. And we've got people right here in this room who said, I'm for Trump at the beginning, worked hard to help him win, uh, worked hard to engage with and get to know the, the key folks in the, in the uh, campaign, and then now the transition. So we're really well positioned in an arena in which there's far fewer people positioned at all. And so I'm excited about that. And you know, with our very bipartisan, deep firm, I think we can have a lot of success. Let me ask it. If you, were, if you were sitting right now with a client in this room and they said, and they were coming to you and they're in kind of a very excited mode because they're not sure what's going on. What's the advice you'd give them right now while it's in the first 100 days of the administration? And then what would be the advice afterwards? In other words, they're, they're coming. Maybe they have an issue or two, but they're very worked up and they're not sure what to do. What's the advice, Mark, you would lay on the table? You know, the first one, and I've been hearing this because almost no one was prepared for a Trump and all Republican Congress. First thing I've been telling everyone is, take it slow. We don't need to chase butterflies. Who's the cabinet secretary? You'll find out when it's in. That's, it'll happen, because that's not where the action is. I see, all, all the, second, be prepared. We don't want to meet with people just because we've got time on a calendar. We want to be smart and thoughtful. How does it fit in to what they might want to do? articulated position, okay, here's a concern, here's a regulation, here's a statute, here's some government overreach that we need to affect, and it's time-sensitive because it's stopping the flow of progress around jobs, around your economic activity, things like that. Then let's go in with the right people at the business level, not just have a bunch of lobbyists tra- you know, kind of trailing around with your senior execs to go in to make an argument about what, about what is important to you aligned with their priorities over the next 100, 200 days. And then then you'll be successful in implementing your uh, agenda. And don't forget the Congress, because as we said, the congressional activity is going to be as important, if not more so at certain points, than what goes on in the executive. If I could just add just real briefly, I think that um, there are a lot of folks who want to engage too quickly. And the advice that we've been giving our clients is – You have a lot of folks coming in from Trump world who understand that a lot of Americans are either uncomfortable with them or don't know what to make of them. And you can earn yourself a lot of goodwill by offering yourself up as a resource to them. We're here to work with you to help you be successful. We understand you've got lots of ideas about take uh, Obamacare. Um, You know, clients that engage constructively, not saying we want X and Y. But saying we've been working in this town for 30 years on these issues, it is a bit of a swamp, but we know how to navigate it, and we're here to talk to you and help you. Don't ask for anything. Offer yourself up as a resource. That could be immeasurably beneficial to clients, more so now than in many other transitions. Fantastic. Well, thank you both, uh, Mark and Al, for joining us today on the podcast and giving a first kind of view of the 100 days and beyond, and we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. 
Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.